Katie Tregidden, and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersection of craft, design and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take-make-waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about waste. We not only live increasingly in an urban environment, but we live increasingly in a digital environment where people replace experiences with time in front of their screens. And that in itself is a problem because you can be perfectly placed beside a beautiful natural habitat and, you know, the trends, you know, just show how much people are on screens. Hugo Tackholm is first and foremost a surfer. Not a very good one, his words, not mine, but he is, like many of us Cornish folk, drawn to spending time in the ocean. He first met the founders of Surfers Against Sewage, the national marine conservation charity he now heads up, in 1991, when he entered the environmentally orientated Surf to Save competition on Polzeth Beach. He quickly became a fully paid up member, getting involved with water quality and climate change demos. He stepped into the role of CEO in 2008. Surfers Against Sewage is a charity whose campaigning and direct action against ocean plastic has mobilised so many that it could almost rebrand as People Against Plastic, mobilising over 100,000 community beach and river clean volunteers every year. Hugo is an environmentalist, an award-winning campaigner, a TEDx speaker, and as I said, a surfer. Tell me about your childhood and your early affinity to water and eventually surfing. Well, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, my affinity to water and surfing. I think in the context of what I do today at Surfers Against Sewage and my, my sort of historic love for the water and for, for sport, you know, I, I would always put myself as an environmentalist first. As a kid, I was fascinated with nature all around me and particularly the ocean and, and stuff that I found in the ocean and particularly stuff that I found in the pond at the end of my garden. And so water was always the, the environment that I, I felt sort of most fascinated about. And I I had a room full of stuff that I sort of collected from the wilds around me, whether it's sort of holidays in whichever part of the, the sort of country I would be in or whether it's from sort of my back garden or local park. I had a sort of a, a big collection of stuff um, that I thought was fascinating. I'm not sure everyone would have thought it was fascinating. What sort of things did you collect? Uh, yeah, everything I collected, you know, collected, you know, broken birds, eggs, shells, uh, rocks, uh, bones, you know, all sorts of things that I would label, I would research, I would find out about them and I would uh, inform myself and educate myself about the natural world. And, and so I had this great love for nature, great love for the sort of big natural history, sort of personalities of our world, you know, the sort of Charles Darwin's of the world. And then, um, and then as I sort of, you know, went through my sort of teens, particularly, I, I was really into sport, running, swimming, and surfing. And uh, surfing just happens to be this intersect for me between, you know, what I love as an environmentalist and, and my passion for doing sort of sport and for activities, particularly in the ocean. So it's a great privilege to work at Surfers Against Sewage and lead campaigns here because it's, you know, almost, almost tailor made for me. And how does surfing and, and spending time in the ocean change your relationship with the environment? Well, look, anything we do, and it's not the exclusive domain of surfing per se, but um, anything you do in the environment exposes you to, to the stuff around you, the, envi- you know, the environment, the habitats, the ecosystem, the animals. 
that um, surround you. So surfing, of course, is a great example of that. And, you know, we have the privilege to surface to see, you know, dolphins, seals, seabirds, basking sharks, you know, here in the UK and around the world, you have interactions with the, the weird uh, and wonderful uh, myriad of ocean creatures there are, some scarier than others, of course, but it sort of puts you at the center of that ecosystem in a funny sort of way. And or as part of it, center would be sort of, I suppose, an arrogant way of looking at it, but it puts you as part of it. And so you sort of become a marine species yourself, a marine indicator species that sees all of the things that happen in the environment. Of course, sees the good things, the, the natural state, the, the abundance, the, the diversity, the brilliance and the, the, the sort of colorfulness of the ocean but also the, the, the challenges it faces. And that, you know, in, in context of what I do today, of course, encompasses water pollution, plastic pollution, the type of destruction you might see on a beachfront. So all of those sorts of things that become distinctly visible when you, you know, when you go surfing, when you go to the beach. Of course, rock climbers would probably say the same. You know, maybe even golfers would say the same. I don't know. But um, certainly I feel privileged to be able to go surfing and have that in my life. Populations are becoming more and more urban and a higher and higher percentage of us are living in cities. Do you think that disconnect from the natural world is a problem in terms of environmentalism? Well, I think that's a, a wider sort of problem in society. And of course, it might be in part driven by urban living, but we not only live increasingly in an urban environment, but we live increasingly in a digital environment where people replace experiences with time in front of their screens. And that in itself is a problem because you can be perfectly placed beside a beautiful natural habitat and you know the trends you know just show how much people are on screens and of course when I was a kid and I'm showing my age you know there were no mobile phones there was no Facebook Instagram Twitter you know there was no Zoom Skype or, or Google meetups and so you know the, the times have changed massively and so instead of our you know investing time in exploring you know our natural world maybe young people and people at large are spending more time exploring the digital world. And that, of course, can in a way show you weird and wonderful things from around the world in terms of the natural world. But, you know, it stops you from having that tactile live approach of getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves, really understanding how the environment fits together around you, not in a scientific sense, but in a practical sense. And I think that practical sense is something that, you know, society and people are losing. Because, you know, they disconnect from nature, they take a step back from it. And in, in doing so, they also, in a, in a strange sort of way, become more fearful of it and see themselves as separate from it. And of course, you know, the big thing we're seeing now, particularly with the current global pandemic, is that we're not separate from nature. We are absolutely part of nature. And our survival and our ability to thrive on planet ocean depends on the fabric of nature remaining intact in its natural state and not in an engineered state. I noticed you use the term planet ocean, whereas most people would probably say planet Earth. Would you mind just expanding on that a little bit? Well, I mean, the majority of the planet is ocean. So it seems perverse that we call it planet Earth. And of course, much of that ocean is yet to be truly discovered. I think we've only mapped what a, a few percent of our, our seabed and deep oceans. And we probably know more about the moon surface than we do about our ocean ecosystem. Of course, it's also under, you know, huge drain this this last sort of bastion of our extraction particularly of animal life you know industrial fishing is the last harvesting of wild animal protein at huge scale for the whole world 
And that's sort of pretty terrifying as the ocean's under threat. So we live on this incredible blue planet. There's still so much to celebrate and protect. And we need to, of course, as we enter into this new decade, which you know happens to be the UN decade of ocean science for sustainable development, it happens to be the UN decade of ecosystem restoration as well. You know, we see the need now for us to, to revitalize these ecosystems and, and not just protect them. This isn't really a conservation effort anymore because conservation is really about preserving a status quo. We need to see a restoration effort now where we're truly allowing the, the planet to flourish again. And that might need just less intervention from people where we allow habitats and ecosystems to recover and re-establish their natural equilibrium that we benefit from so much. You've described yourself as an amphibious activist, and that's another term I'd love to explore a bit more. Yeah, well, you know, I think from the days of, of being sort of waist deep in my garden pond or rock pooling as a kid or swimming in the ocean or now surfing and, and, and going surfing with my son Darwin, you know, I, I see my habitat as both land and sea. I, I, I feel sort of amphibious. I would never claim to be the best surfer or the most astute uh, water person in the world. But I truly love the ability to be able to cross the threshold from land to sea. And that thrilling moment of crossing that threshold where you uh, immerse yourself in the, the sort of briny soup uh, from where we all sort of ultimately came from originally and that's that's sort of amazing so you know i find it very therapeutic and i find it you know where i derive my inspiration for our campaigns from because as an organization surface against sewage is is really driven by the visceral authentic experiences people have and you know that is sometimes my own but more often the hundreds of thousands of people who sort of support us who feel a really direct affinity and a real relationship with their favorite beach or a bit of ocean or a bit of coastal path and oftentimes find themselves you know diving in and, and catching some waves or swimming or sailing or or, or, or hanging out with their kids and, and families and friends yeah it's certainly uh certainly the call of the ocean is strong i think isn't it this series of the podcast is specifically about waste and you've touched on plastic waste very briefly, but I'm interested to know you've been volunteering for Surfers Against Sewage for a long time before you were its CEO and you've talked about this sort of long-standing relationship you've had with water and the ocean. I'd love to know what your aha moment was with ocean plastic. When did that sort of come onto your radar as an issue and what was it that made you realize it should be such an important focus for surfers against sewage? Look, I'm, I'm not totally sure it sort of happens entirely that way. We've been working on ocean plastic for a long time. So for, you know, well over a decade, you know, probably close to 15 years, you know, probably half our sort of lifespan as an organization, we've run um, ocean you know, plastic pollution campaigns. Of course, Beach Cleans mobilizing people from around the world and around the country to tackle the problem directly, but more importantly, to connect those voices to call for, for change at sort of legislative level and with businesses. You know, the aha moments, retrospectively, I think we can always find them. They're always something that we'll, we go, okay, so this is how it happened. And I think we often see that in people's 
autobiographies and we see that in in people's storytelling in this day and age because it it, it fits nicely it shows a strategic intent it shows all of those things and i'm not sure it always happens that cleanly you know we were working on this really hard for a long time up to, you know right um sort of through on things like plastic bag charges on sort of bans on discussions at parliament you know launching our marine plastic pollution uh, report in 2013 bringing people together to campaign for the deposit returns, you know, all of these things. But um, there was this sort of a couple of big moments that, that were big sort of forks in the road. One was the storm Hercules in 2014, at the beginning of 2014, uh, sort of 13, 14, it really was. And then um, there was so much plastic that was washed up on beaches around the southwest. It was like a light bulb moment for lots of new organizations who suddenly started to get together beach cleaners wanted to come out even more with us we saw the the real sort of toll that the single-use culture is placing on our natural ocean environment and it, it, it illuminated um, that to so many more people which was great so it was a, a quite a catalytic moment an accelerator point and then uh, the, the the big moment that everyone sort of thinks about is the blue planet in 2017 in the summer of what well, it was sort of summer autumn time of 2017 we, you know, we at that time had already, you know, we were very established on beach cleans, very established on the lobbying for new legislation to stop plastics, very established with our newly formed Plastic Free Communities program. And then the Blue Planet came along, which was cool. And it was cool because we were we were ready and waiting to do much more with people. And we were uh, at the catcher's mitt, as it were, for people to take action in, in some ways. And what's really incredible about that moment is that People really remember and talk about the Blue Planet as as a sort of a plastic pollution film that sort of changed the world. But it wasn't really about plastic pollution. Only I think only 14 minutes was dedicated to plastic pollution out of seven hours of broadcasting. So it's just amazing how powerful that was um, being projected into households around the country and around the world. And we certainly saw a big sort of uplift um, in interest in what we're doing. We we work with about 100,000 volunteers a year. We've got 700 plastic-free communities around the country. We've been instrumental in legislation on you know the ban on straws and stirrers and cotton buds it's going to come in we were successful in winning the the campaign on deposit return systems and on you know the plastic bag charge before all of that so you know loads of things that people have been engaged with and you know it's it's, a, it's sort of interesting because plastic is such a visible a visible pollutant and it's so present in all of our lives you know i don't think anyone could claim that they don't have an interaction with plastic on any given day or very few people could and so it's it's been a real a, a real enabler for people to take action and um I think people now have to think about the journey that's truly taking them on, that we carry on campaigning hard to actually ask for a reduction in the amount of plastics that's being produced, that we ask for true systems and materials change. I mean, just to digress slightly, you know, we, we're, we're in a period of beautiful, fine weather and um, we see beaches being being really decimated by plastic pollution at the moment, lots of littering happening. And that's really, really bad and people shouldn't litter. But, you know, that's a symptom of, of, of there being way too much plastic in society and for it being used in the wrong places and for there being no truly circular economy systems that can capture and reprocess that plastic. So people shouldn't litter, but this is, we're never going to solve the problem by picking up plastic and putting it in a bin and burning it or burying it we truly need a reform to all of the systems and the companies that produce it need to be responsible for driving that not 
over a number of years, but over over as quick a time frame as possible, because there's already a plastic pollution crisis, and they are pumping more and more into the environment every day. Mm, and actually, that brings me nicely to a, a quote I'd like to share from your forward to the brilliant Lucy Siegel's book, Turning the yeah. Tide on Plastic. And in that forward, you said, plastic is an extraordinary material, flexible, colourful, light, abundant, and almost indestructible. It has had an impact on every human industry and revolutionised the very way we live. Plastic is also an extraordinary pollutant, flexible, colourful, light, abundant and almost indestructible. The very properties that make it so useful also make it problematic when it escapes into the environment. And that really struck me as a, as a powerful way to frame this argument. Actually, plastic's very success is what makes it so problematic. But I mean, originally, plastic was designed to be something that was high value and durable and would last. So how have we got to this place where it's become so undervalued, overused and disposable? Well, I I don't know if it was always meant to be something that was sort of meant to be kept in permanent. So there was a great shift, you know, with the introduction of plastic. So look, it's going to liberate people from having to do the washing up and do stuff because they can get rid of stuff and they can have new sort of things. And so there's part of the, the sort of the single use culture that, that emerged early on too. You know, I think the key reason behind it is sort of capitalism. You know, it's, it's big multinational businesses. It's cheap oil making cheap packaging that can make them more profits. It's also really long supply chains that require lots of, you know, lightweight packaging to wrap products and distribute them around the world. So we have this global system, a global sort of economic system. We've got global supply chains and plastic has been the vector to make all of that happen. It's, it's the most profitable way that lots of these companies do business, but they're really externalizing the cost of the impact of that plastic, you know, both in the immediate term and in the long term. And that's the, that's the story we now need to sort of tell that actually this, you know, this, this business as usual is, is really trading in our future for the convenience of cappuccinos and single-use products around the country on a daily basis. So, you know, there's a big question about the systems revolution we need and the materials revolution we need. But there's no doubt that we we mustn't chuck out the the baby with the bathwater. You know, plastic used in the right way for the right things can be really good. And we, we all depend on it in many ways. So, you know, just saying we should ban it all is also not an option. And we need to find a, a way that is truly used for the right products that are durable and can last a long time and that we move to a culture of reuse and refilling and a much more domestic circular recycling economy that doesn't export our plastic pollution problem to developing nations and nations that are less well suited to cope or less, you know, well financially suited to cope with this waste, because again, we're just sweeping it under the carpet and effectively dumping our rubbish in other countries for them to deal with. And worse still, we often have the audacity as a as a country to then point the finger of blame at these countries and say, look how filthy the plastic pollution problem is over there, and and they should do more about it. So, you know, we we need to we need to change all of that. After the break, Hugo and I talk about beach cleans, reusable coffee cups, plastic-free communities, as well as legislative and systemic change, and how big business need to repurpose their tools and resources to do good and look after planet ocean. 
if you're a designer maker, here's what I want you to know. None of this is your fault. Climate change, ocean acidification, falling biodiversity levels, none of it. But you do get to be part of the solution. And the best part, that gets to be creative, collaborative, and filled with wide-eyed curiosity. Remember that? Visit katietrugiddon.com forward slash membership and leave your eco-guilt at the door. Find a community of fellow travellers, clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietrugiddon.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. When those systems are so global and intertwined and big and complicated, I think they can feel overwhelming. How do we start to bring about that systemic change that's needed? Well, look, I think there's another elephant in the room with this. I mean, the, the systemic change, I mean, the, or people often talk about a top-down or a bottom-up approach. So, you know, there's, there's people who are prescribed to either or quite often. You know, they think all change will happen because of people getting together or all change will happen because big policy leaders or business leaders will make the changes necessary and actually it's neither one nor the other it's a combination of them both and people need to carry on doing beach cleans creating the evidence they need to carry on building plastic free communities they need to carry on refilling their coffee cups and water bottles they need to carry on rejecting single-use culture to build a critical mass and buy-in for that and to push on the right legislative and policy and business moments to get our leaders and elected officials to think about the changes that are needed and then implement those changes at pace. You know, one of the things that is a challenge probably most of all to the sort of environmental sector is that we can't necessarily just start from scratch again. Some of these big businesses have the systems know-how and the supply chain know-how to actually create change. They've got the expertise, they've got the audiences, they've got the structures, and they need to repurpose some of this stuff to do good for the planet. So they're truly protecting planet ocean from plastic pollution and truly protecting, you know, our society from the other sort of impacts they might be part of. And so there has to be a sort of a collaborative intent around that. But at the same time, we're very determined that we shouldn't let big business carry on as usual. You know, we are seeing the wholesale sort of degradation of our planet at the moment. And that's just to create short-term profits, really. And we need to we need to make sure that the sort of full life cycle of all of these, you know, multinational companies' products is, is considered and they're responsible for the recovery and reprocessing of materials that they're using and, and creating that circularity that, that we depend on because ultimately the linear economy will will push us over the edge of uh, of being able to survive on, on planet ocean. Mm, mm, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's definitely time for some of the accountability to be pushed upstream and for some big top-down changes. But as you said, the bottom-up changes are also important. You yeah. mentioned there plastic-free communities and also the beach cleans. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about those two initiatives and, and the success that they've had? Yeah, well, look, we, you know, when I, I took the helm here in 2008, we, we worked with very few beach cleaners, really, probably a, you know, about a, maybe up to a thousand people a year took part, you know, brilliant volunteers, but we hadn't scaled anything there. And then we, you know, began a, a, an ambitious program. And today we, you know, we're really proud to, to have, you know, a hundred thousand amazing volunteers, you know, c 
collaborating with us every year to not just pick up plastic and other you know packaging waste at our beaches but also to create a data set around that and a really focused data set that can help us you know push on the the the, the right sort of political channels to create change and we've done that really successfully over the last few years mm-hmm. to deliver the successes that that will you know come on stream soon around plastic bottles and the sort of certain um, items that will be banned the, the plastic free communities was a, a concept that I, I sort of came up with when, um, you know, in 2016, you know, I realized that within our space, despite the fact that we are beach cleaning and that we were running campaigns that were calling for, you know, financial incentives to stop plastic pollution and the such like, there was no comprehensive campaign that brought people together on the, the sort of fight against plastic pollution and the, the attempts to reduce our plastic footprint on this planet. And so I was inspired by the fair trade town models, which have a certain framework, a, a step-by-step framework that you can get fair trade town status with. And we looked at that and we we created the same sort of thing for the, the, the plastic movement. And I thought back in 2016, I thought, we'd, or 2017, when we actually got it off the ground, I thought, you know, it would be ambitious to have 125 communities by 2020 involved. And we've got 700 and something already, which is incredible. Amazingly sort of diverse geographic locations from Hackney to the Highlands and, you know, incredible volunteers doing things not just within our five-step program, which brings together local businesses, local government, schools and NGOs, a sort of a, a, a steering committee, and then lots of live events to tackle plastic. But they're doing not only our framework, but adding lots more to it. So it's a very open program about about empowering people to do more, bringing people together and asking them the question, how much further can they go? Because it's not a program that starts and ends. It's a program that starts and continues. And that's Mm. really the nature of it. I mean, just just the sheer numbers of people getting involved there really speaks volumes about how much people are getting behind this as an issue. Yeah, look, I think plastic pollution has, you know, captured hearts and minds, you know, around the world and has also thrown a spotlight onto us all in terms of our own behaviours and attitudes in our consumption. Because, of course, really the plastic packaging that we're in single use plastics that we're really targeting is really a proxy measure for general consumption too so people will think about their plastic footprint but they will also align that with how much they're consuming in other areas the, you know the food they're consuming the clothes they're consuming the products they're consuming and actually start to feel more sensitive about their their impact on this sort of planet so it, it is it is in, it's sort of incredible that um it can do that it's something that's so sort of part of our lives at the moment and it's been so immediate for people that I think it's been the ultimate sort of access point for environmentalism for many and of course we've seen a whole raft of new environmental NGOs spring up on the back of plastic pollution you know some doing really good work on the sort of community front with sort of plastic pickups some doing really good work on the sort of refill a sort of agenda and those sorts of things so it's great to see that and and you know many of them those campaigns and new organizations we can trace back in to roots that that you know surface against sewage have been proudly banging the drum on for you know 15 or so years so it's great to see so many people you know coming to the table with sort of a you know fresh take on ideas and new capacity to deliver those that's the nice thing about working for a cause there's kind of no such thing as competitors are there it's all collaborators in the same end goal yeah we we love collaborating yeah what do you think the future holds for plastic plastic waste kind of all of these issues we've been talking about the oceans our environment Look, I think we have a really important decade now 
you know, the decade of ocean science for sustainable development um, and, you know, this the, the habitat sort of the ecosystem regeneration and recovery is is a vital you know mission this decade we 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 can't truly do that if we have this input this massive input of plastic pollution which is not only you know a physical threat to the wildlife out there but of course it's a a threat to our food chains and it's a chemical threat because of course there's a chemical load that goes into the ocean with that too and if you think to an example of, of sort of chemical loads you know we banned pcbs back in 1980 yet the toxic load of those in the ocean is still rendering orca populations infertile and playing havoc with our you know with our big sort of um our, our sort of our whale population so for for me, you know, the, the time for action is now. The future can be much bluer. We've seen that nature can rebound, and particularly ocean ecosystems can rebound quite quickly if we give them the space to breathe. And that's why we're really excited to be working on the highly protected marine areas sort of agenda, because we need to, we need to truly let the ocean flourish again. And um, we've also seen that big business can pivot much faster than they previously proclaimed. So we've seen in three months them them change everything in certain cases in how they do business. And and so this old protestation that we've heard for many years, for many decades of, oh, takes a long time, too complicated, not enough resources, um, all of that. It's like, actually, it's a fallacy where there's a political and business will in the face of a crisis they can do things very very quickly and so we need to have more urgency and speed to these changes we haven't got time to sort of call for more science as to whether there is a plastic pollution crisis there you know there evidently is we know there's a climate crisis we know there's a biodiversity crisis and whilst new evidence can help steer the ship of action to certain sort of ports along the way the direction of travel needs to be accelerated now because we know that business as usual is is killing our planet I think there's no easy way to put it, that if we carry on on the trajectory that we're on, the, all of the science and evidence we've collected historically says that we're, you know, in, in huge trouble. And so now we've got this evidence that shows that we can pivot things really quickly and we can move quickly. So broadly, we need to point the ship in another direction. There's ports and, and parts of the route that we don't quite know of, but we do know the direction it needs to go in. And that's changing some of the big business practices that are you know, really, really damaging. So, you know, extractive industries like oil and fossil fuels, you know, single-use plastics in the current system really are causing a massive problem. You know, we're seeing the habitat destruction from things like, in, you know, industrial fishing being hugely problematic. So we need to triage this and go, like, what industries are, are like, are, are hurting us the most? Yeah, brilliant. And I think that's a I think that's a fantastic note to end on. The time to act is now. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, some really fascinating and, and urgent insights there, I think. Cool. Right. Well, it's been great to talk to you too. I'm hopeful moving forward that we can restore this amazing planet. I hope so too. If you enjoyed this episode of Circular with Katie Tregidden, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit the subscribe button? Those two actions really help other people to find the podcast, so I would be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you to Hugo Tagholm, Gordon Barker for the edit, October Communications for marketing support, Sound Compound for the music, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Tregidden. Thank you.